Hello there and welcome to an all new episode of Talking Fußball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nicholas Wiltaken and I'm here to delight you once more with a long interview with a writer. This time around I'm joined by Tobias Asher who has written about football tactics for many many years now. It's always interesting to listen to. So right after the break comes my interview with Tobias so stay tuned for that. Joining me now is one of our favorite guests here on Talking Foosball. He's been on our show a few times, uh, but he hasn't been so for a couple of years, as he just told me. But now we have some more reasons to have him back on, because obviously he's written a new book. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about the founder of Spielverlagerung.com, the tactical journalist who uh, writes his brilliant columns for Elfreunde. It's none other than Tobias Asher. How are you doing, Tobias? That was a very nice introduction of you. <laughs> Thank you very much, and um, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. As I mentioned, you've uh, written a new book, which is going to appear in Germany on April 21st. Right. It's called uh, Der Schlüssel zum Spiel, The Key to the Game. And as you state in your book, you can ask Louis van Gaal just about anything. I mean, if you want him to explain you how to party, ask the fire beast. <laughs> But as it turns out... And good on you for, <laughs> in, in terms of writing this book, as it turns out, his model of the four different phases of play can explain football matches pretty well, can't they? Yeah, uh, when I started to work on the book, I was in a kind of a struggle because I always planned to write a book about tactics, about uh, tactical concepts, about how... Um, these tactical concepts are used in modern football, but it's pretty hard to find the right structure to work with because it's so many different areas of football that work together. And then I thought of Louis van Raal, who had this uh, great idea of dividing a soccer match into four phases. Phase one, you, your team has the ball. Possession game, phase two, your team loses the ball. So there's a transition happening right there. You have to transist, uh, You have to do the transition from offensive possession game to defensive game. Third phase, of course, is then the defensive phase where um, the opponent has the ball and you have to figure out how you can stop the opponent from scoring a goal. And then finally, fourth phase, when you regain the ball, when you regain possession. That's like when you have the option to do a counterattack, to counterattack. And I think this works pretty well as a structure because you can always find out the main parts of the phases within a football game. Even if you don't aren't interested in tactics at all, you can always see these different phases and try to figure out what teams are trying to do in these different phases of the game. Yeah, and I mean, there, there are obviously a few interruptions here and there. I mean, there are fouls, balls can go out of play, uh, goals can be scored, half-time. But, you know, other than that, what it basically tells you is that a football player is going back and forwards and teams have to adjust to different phases of play at any given moment. Which brings me to my next point, because, you know, oftentimes people talk about formations. I've been... <laughs> told by so many football fans that a coach should be sacked because he doesn't play this or that formation they want a 4-4-2 instead of that rubbish 4-2-3-1 what is he thinking about however i mean if you watch football more closely and as you know i've done so for many years you watch it even more closely and have even more keen tactical eye than i have i mean i'm i'm bit of a hobby tactician compared to you but you know even i can observe that 
teams rotate their formation all the time. I mean, just to give you an example, a team can nominally be set up as a 3-2-3-5-2. But at one point, you can see one of the defenders leaving his backline to go into midfield. You can see the two wingers dropping deep to defend, creating a back five once the ball is lost. You know, and you see those numbers rotating all the time. And, you know, the, the number of players in each section of the field and defense, midfield and attack, it always changes. So I, I suppose my question is, do we still have use for using those numbers to say they're playing a 4-4-2 or 3-5-2 or 4-2-3-1? I mean, those numbers don't tell us how teams actually play, do they? Yeah, you're making a very good point there because flexibility is, is key in football. Uh, you, uh, if you watch a football game, you almost never see these um, lines, this 4-4-2, what you were saying, 3-5-2, that, that teams are strictly in this formation. You don't, you usually don't see this kind of things. Um, usually, team, if you talk to coaches nowadays, they are talking about principles very often. Like, uh, if situation X happens, what solution should I use in this situation? And they are trying to guide their players with principles. But still, formations are important for for players also, just to know what's their um, position and their role on the pitch. If you tell a player he's playing wing back in a five back formation, it's a different role than if you play in a four uh, with a four back um, formation. So this is also an important part, the formation. But then again, if you go on on the pitch. The principles the the coach tells you what to do in certain situations are much more important than this sheer numbers of uh, the sheer formation numbers. So what we're basically saying is the num or the formation numbers can be important for players because it tells them what sort of spaces they should cover. Yeah, yeah right, right. Because uh, football is a very complex game, and it's always. The struggle for coaches and also for for players is like um, you are in a situation in a match that you don't have time to think. You have to do you have to do your actions right now. There's no time for thinking in in football. It's a very dynamic game. And to have these solutions in, in your mind, you have to train them and you have to always um, repeat them. And this is like what we used to what we used to call in German automatismen. Like it works we have to work automatic. And that's what what you're trying to do. But still if you're Uh, want to implement um, on a tactical level stuff you have to tell the players where do you have to have to be on the pitch like what what is your role where what what kind of space do you have to occupy where have to you do you have to stand and to tell them you are playing today as the as a white as a right winger and that gives them the sense of where they have to be what is the role in a very very basic way and i think that's still important Mm, yeah absolutely so i mean for me it's sort of those formation numbers when they're thrown around by journalists who say that somebody should play this or that formation um, i mean that that basically doesn't give me any content or anything to think about i think it's it's oftentimes used wrongly but the way you explain it, i i can i can see how it makes sense to still use formations um another term that is oftentimes used by the press by match reporters and by fans is the word pressing however as you point out the term is oftentimes used incorrectly or partially correctly by those people in your book you explain all facets of the pressing game could you highlight the most important aspects of how the pressing game works and the nuances within the pressing game Uh, that's an interesting point again because here we are already leaving tactical thinking also coming it's becoming an issue of language 
because in Germany, if you're talking, if you're talking with people from the German Football Federation who are doing the coaching seminars, they have a different definition of pressing than usual people. Is usually when you talk about pressing, if a team um, attacks the opponent high up on the pitch. For example, right at their box, and then you're talking about pressing. Oh wow, they are aggressive pressing. But in German, if you if you look at the German context, pressing is every attempt to steal the ball from the opponent. Um, every time I go into a direct one-on-one -on -one and with the opponent try to get the ball, it's it's some sort of pressing. And then your pressing concept is very much wider because they you have very different ideas of pressing. You can do pressing, you can define pressing by where on the pitch are you pressing. Are you pressing um, near the opponent box or are you pressing near your own box? Are you inviting the opponent into your half or are you not inviting it in, him into your half? This is like one aspect. But you can also ask questions like how many players are involved in the pressing? Is some players more involved? Do, you, do I want to try to get the ball to a certain opponent player and press this certain opponent player? These are all facets of pressing, and this is a very interesting topic because this is one of the key ideas in modern football to try to systematize the way of when and how to get the ball from the opponent. And this is what pressing is about. Mm, absolutely. One of my favorite sentences in the book is, is about how defenders oftentimes are blamed for goals teams concede because as reporters or journalists write, they were too far away from their man. But As you point out, that would have been true 30 years ago, back when most teams were mostly concerned about marking the opponent rather than certain spaces. How does modern defending work these days? You have a chapter on that in your book, which I found highly interesting. Yeah, I worked with a model from another great coach, not Louis von Raal this time, uh, but Arrigo Zaki who worked in, in Milan in the 90s, a long time ago. And he said there are four, I, I, in German, the word is Referenzpunkt, four points of reference for the player, for the defender. One is the opponent, of course, but also space. Where am I on the pitch? What space am I occupying? Also my teammates. Where are my teammates? What do my teammates do? And the ball, the position of the ball, of course. And a defender has to... Keep in mind all these four different points of reference. So if you're, for example, this man marking, this idea that defender A has to man mark attacker B, this it doesn't work anymore in, in modern football because you try to op occupy the pitch of the field as good as possible. If the opponent has the highest, uh, the best way to score for the opponent is just to run to the keeper in the center of the pitch and to get a one-on-one situation with the keeper. And that's what you try to try trying to um, defend. That's what you're trying to stop the opponent of doing. And so you have to find creative ways of doing this. And what I'm trying to explain in the book is like these modern concepts with all this uh, modern stuff we know, pressing, back four, how does a back four work? How does Abwehrkette, uh, uh, as we uh, call it in German, chain, uh, a defending chain, how does that work, etc., etc., just to stop the opponent. And it's just that man versus man, it's more... 10 men versus 10 men. So players have to keep in mind that they're not alone on the pitch and they have to work together. And that's the key in this chapter of the book. Yeah, I mean, what you what you point out as well is that the mistakes that oftentimes lead to goals are oftentimes not made by the defender who was judged to be too far away from, from his opponent. It's oftentimes made higher up the pitch, which, I mean, it's, it's a very good and interesting point. Uh, another another aspect you, you write about is... <laughs> Uh, which what would be the English word for, the, for that moving chains of players from one side to another just to force your opponent to 
play the ball into a certain path, which you obviously can quite often. Yeah, that's a go- interesting topic. It's not in my book, but it's an interesting topic is um, language, of course, because in different languages, you have different concepts. In English and German, you have different concepts about how to play football. This concept, again, then um, influences the way you play, of course. Because like German, we have different terms for man marking, man deckung, man orientierung, and and so on. And these are all German concepts. German German football, like German football, is it's very brutal. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a duel for between two players is called a Zweikampf, which uh, basically is a struggle between two men. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, as Simon Cooper pointed out, and I think it was football against the enemy, sounds rather brutal to an English person. Yeah. So, yeah. um. Yes, definitely. Language, football language would definitely be a great, great topic for, for a book. If you listening out there <laughs> want an idea for what you can write about. Obviously, we, we, we don't, I don't have the time to do that. Um, <laughs> anyways, well, now that we've, uh, now that we've talked about defending, there's the aspect of once the team has won the ball, the question now becomes how they can create a numerical advantage in order to create something with their possession. Again, there are many ways to roam. Can you talk us through the most common and typical ways of trying to establish numerical advantages in order to create chances? Yeah, that's, um, a, again, a really large topic. And, and of course, if you would talk to 10 different coaches, they would have 10 different answers. And I would think it's always about finding some way to be superior to your opponent. You said like one way is to have a, n- a numer- numerical advantage, like having more players near the ball than the opponent. So you're having more options for passes, for dribblings, more players who can uh, run into spaces, etc., etc. That's all. That's one way. You can also have an individual su- superiority if you give the ball to Messi in a situation where he can uh, start start to dribble. You have an of, of course your superior. And it works different with different players. Uh, Ayan Robben, we all know his move. He gets the ball on the right right side, moves inside and um, shoots with his left foot, etc., etc. Every player has his own way in which he's stronger. And, it's, yeah. and, and yeah. Robin, Robin could take on two or three defenders at the same time. And so yeah. the numerical advantage of yeah. being three on one necessarily didn't, didn't count for it's much. Like you, but it's about getting the players into a position where they can succeed and getting the players into a position where they can uh, use their best and you can also have an advantage that your structure in itself is better than the opponent, that you have more options to create, that you have better options, that you get into the spaces that you want uh, want to get into. And these are all very complex things. I try to pin them down. I don't know how if it exactly how well it works to pin them down on a basic level, but I hope it. Uh, I did a good job in the book. And these are the things I'm trying to explain in, in the book. I think you do so rather well. I mean, as, as I said, I'm a more of a casual uh, observer of tactics, and I, I learned many things reading those 222 pages. Uh, we've covered defense, we've covered attack, and we've taken a look at the different phases a football match revolves around, well, at least according to Louis van Gaal, that is. You don't necessarily cover this in your book, but given that you write about how teams plan and plot, and given that m- any move a coach makes is countered by the coach on the opposite bench i'd be interested in hearing what your take is on pure chance and coincidences how much of a football match is decided by pure damn luck or chance these days that's always a question how you define luck or chance of course there's a big factor of chance let's say there's a big factor in football that you cannot plan for a coach can only plan so many 
things in a match. And football is a very dynamic game. The ball can fly into all directions. Players can move in all directions. Theoretically, you could uh, just hang out at the uh, at the corner flag for 45 minutes with all your 11 players. It would be it would be legal. It would be dumb to do so, but it would be legal. So football is a very complex complex game, and there are all in every match. Thousands of things happens that uh, the coach cannot plan for, but he can always try to make these uh, to give himself a little bit of an advantage. For example, if you're looking at teams Jurgen Klopp is um, coaching, they have a strict plan on how to enter the box, the opponent box. So the players have to move into into certain areas of the box to get and uh, maximize their chance to score a goal. And for example, one player always have to has to be in a position to get the ball when it uh, in case it goes on uh, to the post. So the ball is headed onto the post, and then striker B comes in and uh, shoots a goal. You could say, yeah, he, it was it was luck that he was there. It was luck that the ball got to the post and to him. But in uh, but for Jurgen Klopp, it's a thing that he's planned before the match. So there's a, always this this very tiny edge between. Plan and chaos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I was, I was thinking back and forth on on this, and somebody said to me that luck doesn't matter as much in football anymore as it used to do before. And he said you can see that by the fact that teams like Bayern or Liverpool or Real Madrid or Barcelona they drop fewer points these days than they did ten or twenty years ago. So if that is true, I don't know. I mean, I could play in one hundred different things now. Anyways, I was, I was just interested in your, on your take on that. Anyways, tactics and football, they aren't ever changing. Uh, you point that out several times in your book, and you've analyzed tactics for some time. I think the first time me and you spoke was back on the old Bundesliga Fanatic podcast, which no longer exists. So given that we've known each other for almost 10 years, it seems only natural for me to ask, what are the biggest tactical developments that have taken place over the last decade? Uh, over the last decade, yeah, there's been a lot of, as you as you already said, uh, there's a lot of been a lot of micromanagement. The coaching staff becomes bigger and bigger. Again, Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp with the example, they've got a coach for throw-ins, so just he's just doing throw-ins, and uh, this kind of specialization always gives you um, more de- more work in detail. But if I would have to highlight um, the two biggest things that happened, maybe in the last 15 years, it would be transition game. It would be like, on the one hand side, what we witnessed, it's like over 10 years ago, especially when Mourinho was very um, successful in his days with Inter or Porto or later Real Madrid, is transition game. Winning the ball, scanning the field and trying to get in front of the goal as fast as you can. And that's that's one way that's really, uh, really changed. And if you, nowadays, the showing a lot of um, matches on TV, old matches like from World Cup 1990 or even World Cup 2006, and you don't see this kind of fast game there yeah. as much as you do nowadays. I was watching watching a Euros 96 match and I was like, oh, damn, that's slow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's only it's only 25 years ago. And the, the other aspect is also transition game, but in the other direction. Like, what do I do after I lose the ball? And that's, again, Jürgen Klopp with Borussia Dortmund. They did a great job. And also Liverpool uh, trying to regain possession right after you lose the ball. That's, that's the key factor to have dominance in a game. And that's the other big trend we've seen in the last 10 years that more and more teams try to use this phase very constructively. 
Excellent. Um, well, uh, let's just take a small break. And after the break, we'll be back to talk about tactical history some more. Here we go. It's part two of the podcast. Um, so I've still got Tobias Asher joining me. So we've been talking about his new book. Let's talk about one of his other books. He actually wrote a book on German tactical history, which, you know, went from pretty much the start of the game in Germany until 2016. So, Tobias, where to start with German football? I think a natural starting point would be Otto Nerz and Zapp Herberger. They were the first two men who made a huge impact on German football history in terms of that tactical knowledge. And, uh, well, can you tell us what sort of tactical developments they brought to Germany and what impact they had on German football further down the line? Yeah, of course, Otto Nerz was the first real Bundestrainer, so to say. He was the first one in this job. He was a very German figure, very authoritarian etc very traditional but he tried he always looked to England who was his big um, who was his big um, source of inspiration and there he kind of revolutionized German football by implementing a new formation which was called the WM system which was a tactical revolution at that time and Herberger who uh, succeeded Nerds, but they didn't have the best relationship of all. There was some fighting uh, behind the backgrounds, but Herberger then, after he succeeded, he tried to move on with this system. But he was also always looking in different directions. For example, he looked with the great Hungarian team of the 50s, the one they finally beat in the legendary final of 1945, the Wunder from, uh, von Bern. But he also tried to implement these ideas. So they were these classical German authoritative figures who were uh, some call sort of Napoleon-esque figures in the way they treated their players, but they were also on a tactical level trying to implement new ideas from around the world. Well, you, you pointed out in your book um, Otto Nerds and Zepp Herberger obviously both were with the national team during during the years of the Nazis. Zepp Herberger was actually not the first choice or wasn't necessarily a shoe-in for the job for the national team coach after World War II. Otto Nerds, at that point, he had, uh, he had written a pamphlet on uh, how Jews have ruined football, uh, which made him pretty much uneatable after the, after World War II. Uh, what, what was surprising, though, if you knew a bit about Otto Nerz's history, is that he worked for Tanz Borussia Berlin, who, a club that had a Jewish president uh, shortly before the Nazis took over, but be that as that may. Yeah, I don't know what's the what's the uh, consensus in the uh, history in history science, but a couple of years ago it was uh, it's not 100% clear if Otto Nerz wrote it himself or if somebody wrote it in his name and he he was forced to sign this pamphlet. Mm. It's a it's a dark chapter, but it's known that he was like that he was a very authoritarian figure, and he believed in authoritarianism. So mm. it's strange. Uh, it's um, difficult things. Yeah, it's difficult times. D difficult, difficult, difficult things to to <laughs> to describe yeah. um, and to write about. And uh, but obviously, you have to mention these things. Um, yeah, of course. Of to course. add some context yeah. um, with with Herberger, um, what you can say about his time during the World War Two is that he tried to help his players wherever he could. And additionally, he actually uh, before the World War Two started, he had uh, he had the Breslau Elf. Mm. The Breslau Eleven, uh, which was a team that was so spectacular that a lot has been written about it, but 
it never really came to fruition, did it? Yeah, the war, um, the war changed that. There was a team right before the war where they played. I think they played Denmark, was it? I think in Breslau. In yeah, Denmark, and they yeah. won. Uh, it was was must have been a spectacular game. And Herberger always said this was his best eleven. He, they played the best football. They played fluid combination football, and like not the classical German style. And he always said it was the best team. And this man won the World Cup in 1945. So, so it means something if he says this was my best team ever. But then the war came, and the war, of course, um, did not uh, did stop the foot footballing. This was a big. Uh, this was very hard for Herberger, who was a man who only lived for football, who had no other interests than football. Um, Jürgen Leinemann, who wrote a very a great biography on Herberger 20 years ago, he said that he has some sort of depression in the war. Not because of the war, but because there was no football in the war. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, It's really weird, and um, this Breslau elf was right before the war, and it was cut uh, cut down with, with yeah, the, war the players all had all had to go to war. The, the Breslau elf uh, actually that happened back in 1937, and uh, obviously it, it never came to fruition as well because Austria and Germany was actually they were joined together before yeah, World right. War II, and. Mm -hmm. uh, At that point, the DFB decided that uh, there had to be a formula put into place that saw six of six German players and five Austrians playing in the in the German national team, which at that point was uh, quite idiotic because um, Herberger and Otto Nerz obviously were fans of the WM system. The Austrians weren't. They were they were a bunch that uh, still practiced the two the old two three five system. So um, that that was uh, obviously never going to work out well. After Herberger, if we're moving forward a few years, there was Helmut Schoen, who celebrated the World Cup and the year's true triumph with the German nationality at the beginning of the 70s, in 72 and 74. And at the same time, there was Bayern and Borussia Mönchengladbach fighting for the German championship year in and year out. All German championships, bar one, were won by these two teams during the 70s. A lot has been made of the fact that Gladbach supposedly were the underdogs playing an attacking brand of football. I mean, their nickname these days is The Fools, which, um, you know, highlights the young players playing attractive football. Whilst Bayern, on the other hand side, they were portrayed as a machine grinding out results. However, technically speaking, there were a lot of similarities between these two sides during the 70s, weren't there? There was quite some similarities. It's interesting because, of course, if you're looking at popular sources like magazines, they were always trying to place them as antagonists. Of course, which of course had to be done at the time because they were the two teams always fighting for the place on the spotlight. But if you look at reality, the both teams played very much attacking football. Bayern maybe a little more possession oriented, a little more uh, dependent on their sweeper. Franz Beckenbauer, who created this role of a libero, of a uh, player who played as the last defender, but when he got the ball, he moved forward and uh, dribbled with the ball. And in, at Gladbach, Günther Netzer was the most important player, a man who was classical playmaker, who played what we would today uh, call number six. But then again, if you look deeper into the sources, you can also see that, for example, Netzer also played as a libero for one season in the Bundesliga um, for Gladbach because that's what uh, the, the coach Weisswaller wanted to try then. And then again, 
Uh, Gladbach, who was always portrayed as this offensive side, they were when they first won the title, they were had the best best defense in the league, and a lot of um, also players said it was because they played more defensively in these years. As before that, they were always running forward, and then um, they were playing more defensively just to get to get the title. And this is like pragmatic football. We usually say Bayern Munich are the pragmatic ones. No, in this case, uh, Borussia and Gladbach were the pragmatic ones. So there were some similarities, of course, between these two sides. But as, as you mentioned, there, there were some differences as well. You mentioned that uh, yeah. Beckenbauer was obviously the libero going forward, and then there was Netzer, who, as you say, played libero for one season, but mostly was a more of a holding midfielder. What, what were the other differences? The style for Gladbach Weisweiler, he was the coach of Gladbach. He was a man who um, always wanted to play very fast, direct football. If you look at from it from a nowadays perspective, it was still slow, but from the, for that time, it was really fast. You know these uh, long balls, they are famous in, in Germany, this long balls Netzer played. Mm. We always used to say he played from the tiefer des Raums, from the depth of the space, because he always dropped deep and then played these long balls forward. This was a very characteristic thing for Gladbach to do. Bayern, on the other hand, they didn't play as much long balls. The very characteristic move the Bayern was Franz Beckenbauer starting an attack, playing a pass to Gerd Müller. They're playing a one-two, Beckenbauer launching into space, and then they um, were playing much more combination style. So there were certain differences, but again, these were very much hyped. And if you look at uh, the tape material of this of the time, you don't see these differences as pronunciated as I'm telling you right now. There were a lot of similarities in case they were both dominant teams, they were both high-scoring teams, etc. Mm. Hannes Weisweiler, an uh, interesting figure. Tell, tell, tell me a little bit about him. He was obviously, um, besides being Gladbach's coach, he was uh, also in charge of the coaching education of the DFB back in the 70s, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a very interesting uh, figure and he was also a very influential figure. He was also one of the guys that were influenced by Herberger himself. But he was more, uh, he was not interested in compromising. And his idea of the fast transition game, etc., he always tried to implement this in the coaching and seminars for the coaches he was, he was doing at the time, which is also interesting. He was a coach from the 70, uh, from the 60s on in the Bundesliga, but uh, in his free time, in his spare time, he was leading the coaching seminars, which is an interesting role if you look at it from a today's point of, uh, point of view. But he always tried to this uh, this not compromising idea his ideas, and he was always trying to teach other uh, coaches these ideas. And so these these ideas he had with this fast transition games they became standard in German football because he had much more influence than the Bayern school of thought, who only later would become important. If you look, for example, at Beckenbauer as a Bundestrainer in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> well, moving on to the 80s and 90s, uh, in the 70s we had club sides winning international honors, the national team winning the most important tournaments. 70s obviously were a brilliant decade for German football. I mean, that was even a year where four, all four semi-finalists in the UEFA Cup were German sides. However, the 80s and 90s were really not living up to the same standards, were they? I mean, there was a World Cup in 1990, there was the Euros of 1996. But besides that, you really can say that German football wasn't at its best during those two decades. What went wrong? German football, uh, they did. I think they did pretty well in the 80s. They were in two World Cup finals and they won a World Cup then in 1990, which I was also um, very much... But they were very much prisoners of their own style. 
They were starting to believe that um, this German brand of football, this fighting, uh, you have to fight, you have to play men marking, men versus men, football is a man versus men sport. And um, these ideas were very much implemented in every coach and every, and every level in Germany. And at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a revolution going on in world football. Um, offensive Coaches like um, Zaki um, implemented new ideas in football, or even Johan Cruyff at Barcelona. It was suddenly it was about not man marking but space, uh, but marking space. It was the back four was created, etc., etc. And these no ideas that came up. Germany was just not um, taking up these ideas. There were no coaches who could learn these ideas because these ideas were not um, were not taught by the DFB at their coaches uh, coach seminars. And then in the late 90s and especially early 2000s, you could see the fallout from this um, from this development. Germany was lagging good coaches, lost lagging ideas, and we lost the Euros. 2000 was a debacle. Uh, we got into the final of 2002, but it was very, very bad football. The German team played. Nobody knows how they came here. We know why they were in the final, because they beat uh, USA and South Korea. And that was about it. So that was a very dark decade. And Saudi Arabia, not 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 to forget that win. Saudi Arabia, yeah, and eight, Ireland. 8-0. 8-0 eight, eight eight, yeah. against Saudi Arabia. Miroslav Klose scoring a hat-trick. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And Brilliant. Scintillating football. Uh, <laughs> other than that, yeah, that, that mm. tournament was actually um, not, not Germany's finest hour, but... As you said, the World Cup in France in 1998 and the Euros really in 2000, they really showed that German football was in a disastrous state. And Erich Rybak actually played with an almost 40-year-old Lothar Matthäus as a, as a sweeper during the Euros back in 2000. While, you know, the rest of the world had actually caught on to the idea of using it back for. But even though those at the top were slow to realize the revolution that Saki and others had started... There was a brave man coaching a small team named SSV Ulm, who was brave enough to go onto German television to challenge the status quo and to explain to the German public how modern tactics work. Tell us a little bit about Ralf Rangnick and the Swabian School of Coaches and their influence on German football over the last 20 years. If you were to become a coach in the 80s and 90s in Germany, you had to go to the DFB, you had to do their seminars. And in these seminars, you were taught men marking is the best thing that happened to the uh, to football in in the history, and other ideas were not taught. And Ralf Rangnick, uh, he came into contact with other ideas, with different ideas. He came into contact when he was doing a, a training camp in the early 80s when he saw a team of uh, from uh, coached by. Um, Lubanovsky, I think, from uh, Dynamo Kiev, who were implementing ideas like uh, marking space. And they were um, thinking, okay, and he was playing there and he was coaching and was thinking, they are two men more than we are, just because they're, they're doing different tactics. And this there, and he tried to copy these ideas. And from Ralf Rangnick, there came a whole school of coaches who were implementing their new ideas that they heard of. And some of these guys like are still having a lot of influence on German football. For example, Joachim Löw, who learned to be a coach in Switzerland, where he had also contact with these ideas. Uh, but also another young coach at that time, 
who was thinking about becoming a coach, he called Ralf Reinig and said, uh, do you think I should become a coach? And Ralf Reinig said, yes, you should definitely become a coach. And this man was Jürgen Klopp, <laughs> who also got influenced by this uh, Swabian school of thought, who also uh, tried to implement um, a back... Uh, he did implement a back four at the end of uh, of the 90s, early 2000s in Mainz, which was a really novel thing in, in Germany at that time. Yeah, but he, he had another influence when it came to, to his tactics. Wasn't there wasn't like a guy named Wolfgang Franke who was highly... Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about him because he, he seems to be a forgotten figure in terms of his importance. Totally forgotten. Totally forgotten figure. A coach who never had any success in uh, German football. He was coaching second league sides, but he had a lasting influence in German football because he was coaching Mainz at the, at the, in the 90s where Jürgen Klopp was his disciple. And um, Wolfgang Frankl also learned about ma uh, about sp uh, marking space, about the back four, but his time he learned it in Switzerland and he also learned it in Holland where he used to play as a, as a, as a player in the 70s. Uh, who used to play against Johan Cruyff, for example. And that's where he had his ideas from, and Jürgen Klopp was his biggest disciple. And uh, he then, when he became a coach, he said, Wolfgang Frank, he was my biggest influence. There we go. I mean, if you, if you want to know why Jürgen Klopp is doing this, this well these days, uh, there, there is part of the answer. Well, are, are there any other forgotten coaches over the years that have sort of soured in the Bundesliga 2 or in the lower Bundesliga sides that should get a bigger bigger name for themselves in, in the history books? Oh, probably. I don't have any names right now up on Rolf Schaufstahl? Right, yeah, yeah. For example, he was also one of the uh, coaches who implemented the back four pretty early and who were um, trying to have these ideas. Uh, even Giovanni Trapattoni at Bayern Munich, one of the reasons why he failed at Bayern Munich because the players were reluctant to use these uh, modern tactics and he, he was going crazy in Munich because he didn't know um, how to get them to play the way he wanted to play. Yeah, there were some figures who were trying to fight against uh, uh, Ernst Mindrop, for example. Ernst Mindrop, yeah. uh, former coach at Arminia Bielefeld, took them to the Bundesliga. Um, works in South Africa these days, or did so, uh, and, and last time I checked. Uh, anyways, well, besides the last World Cup, the German national team has been among the best teams in every major tournament since that Swabian school took over. Obviously, you had Jürgen Klinsmann, who was sort of more like... Um, you know, the mover and shaker of things, but behind him you had Jürgen Löw, who we've already talked about, who uh, was the tactical brains behind the operation. But Löw, after he took over as, as the coach for the German national team, he hasn't necessarily always stuck to the same formula over these years. And you point that out in your book, that he is a coach who is in constant development. So tell us about how he has developed over the years. Um, he always tried to um, implement new ideas into his culture style, and um, you have to you have to see up to 2014, he lost a lot of games, important games. He lost 2006 as the co uh, as the uh, co coach, as the assistant coach from Jürgen Klinsmann the, against Italy in the half finals. He lost the half final against Spain in 2010, and. Especially this uh, match against Spain, he really had got him thinking. Up to 2010, he was a coach. He was focused on winning the ball, counter-attacking, fast football. That's it. And but when they played against Spain in the World Cup semifinals in 2010, um, the Spanish were implementing a much more possession-oriented style. They were trying to hold on to the ball. They were trying to pass the ball, and they outplayed the German side. And Joachim Löw, he really looked looked at this 
deeply and he thought we have to implement this kind of style also if you want to become a world champion if you want to become a world champion you also have to have to be able to keep the ball yeah i mean the that that game was so bad for the German players that Bastian Schweinsteiger said it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the problem getting the ball it was that when you got the ball you didn't have any energy or any sense of knowing what you actually could do with the ball that is I mean Spain actually outplayed Germany that much that such experienced players that didn't actually know what to do with the ball and in 2014 Germany was the side with the highest um, possession from the teams that got onto the uh, to the KO, the knockout phases. And this shows how much the style um, changed over the years. Absolutely. But yeah, but again, my book, I've written it in 2016, I think. There was a not so good World Cup from a German <laughs> point of view since then. Uh, I think well, there's if, no, if you had, been if no. If you would write an updated version, what would you write about that now? Yeah, you would have to write about 2018, about um, how German, Germany failed. It's uh, exactly because. Uh, Joachim Löw did not change his tactics this time. He was um, reluctantly stuck to his old ideas that did no longer work in 2018. If you look at the France side of 2018, they had some possession, of course, but they were also, again, a team that played very fast, uh, very fast counter-attacking uh, style. So they had both both ideas implemented. The German team was very slow at this World Cup. And that was a big problem there that he forgot to implement new ideas and now he's trying to do this after the world cup after the world cup shock he's trying to have a more direct style again and maybe maybe he'll get uh, towards a new better style this time when if there ever will be a euro 2025 um yeah well we'll we'll have to see about that so that that is where we're heading it's uh, obviously interesting times maybe just i mean we both of us are stuck at home i'm on parental leave from work right now which is great but uh there's really nothing to do <laughs> other than you know popping through the shops seeing people in, in straight into their eyes and, and see the fear in their faces <laughs> as um they uh, reach for a burrito <laughs> but um i mean what we're talking about in germany and and that's this is going to be my last question and it's not really to any of your books but what we're talking about in germany is um ghost matches uh clemens turnis uh, came through uh, the other day saying that uh, you know I've got testing facilities for pig blood uh, you could use that to test for corona as well and I won't charge you anything uh, I don't want to make any economic hay of, of this which is uh, you know brilliant a rich man not asking for any money is uh, absolutely delightful as always what we're talking about here is ghost matches and there's a lot to handle and to deal with if that is going to happen but if it's going to happen how do you think the atmosphere or the lack of atmosphere and you know having just a sunday kick around atmosphere is going to influence professional footballers and how from a tactical point of view can coaches work with these players given that in some i mean it's up to the states to decide how teams can work with each other i mean in some states the players have to be in groups of four i think so how do you work with players on such a small scale mm. Yeah. Is, is the football just going to look like shit when we yeah. get back or have coaches ways of working their tactical ideas with the, with those players given the even in, in, in the current situation and the, uh, as I mentioned in the first part it's pretty much these days about principles and about principles of play and coaches always try to implement these principles of play in in training 
in coaching sessions this is not really possible at the moment because you can't uh, you can't do a lot of stuff you can't Uh, train transition without players without a player losing a ball how do you want to trade uh, train uh, want to coach how do you have to behave in the transition phase for example can show them on video yeah. well, I mean that, that's yeah. you can show them on video but it's not the same it's always not the same to have to be in this situation to be in the situation on the pitch and then uh, to save these situations in inside your uh, your brain and then uh, you can always use them automatic in the game so you can't train this uh, properly um, but what's what's uh, what will be good is that the players they had a pause right now so they will be 100% fit when uh, 100% match fitness when the when the games are up and also um, the lack of atmosphere will be brutal for anyone watching this it will be a painful reminder of uh, of what we are in uh, right now what in uh, what a difficult situation this is But for the coaches, of course, this is a chance because they can interact on a different level with the players. The players are able to hear what the coaches are saying. We are talking now about football matches in June. So when it will be really hot, this is also uh, one effector nobody's talking about, that meteorologists are warning us that there will be 40 degrees Celsius or higher this summer and football will be, will be played in June and maybe even July. So we're talking about... Um, Breaks. We're talking about what we had at the World Cup. We're talking about breaks for drink, for drinks, and for example, also or again a way to influence the players on a tactical level. So you might be right, maybe right. The lack of uh, training will be a problem, but I think the in-match coaching will be much more focused now. Uh, would uh, would be much more focused if we have to, uh, if you are talking about ghost matches. So maybe not the end of the world in terms of quality. Is your answer in terms of quality? Um, certainly not, but also it, I'm a, a numbers guy. I'm an analytical guy, but still I'm not a robot, and I think it will be a really weird atmosphere. And I watched this Cologne Gladbach match. It was yeah, that was, not what you want, that, that was, want from football. That was horrible watching and <laughs> having nine or ten weeks of that. Oh, good God! I don't know if I want that. Anyways, Tobias, it was great to have you back on. Once again, congrats on, on, on your book. It's, it's, it was an absolute delight to read. Tell, tell our listeners where they can find your work and where they can find you on Twitter and uh, where they can get in touch with you. Yeah, you can get in touch with me uh, on Twitter, Tobias Escher. If you got a question, my direct messages are always open. I always try to answer them. Or you can just surf to laptoptrainer.de or spielverlagerung.de, my sites, and you can see me at Rocket Beans on Bundesliga, a show we're doing on Bundesliga. And you could also buy my books, and that's enough advertising for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, a bit of advertising as well. Uh, I, I don't think any of your books have been translated into English so far. So uh, uh, if, if Sadly not. If, you, if anybody's interested in translating it, if anybody has a publisher and wants to translate it, Feel free to contact me. There you go. If you're a publisher listening, do so. All right. This is it for another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Tobias Escher. We'll be back in a very short while. Uh, hope you stay safe. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Foosball. Find our Facebook page. Uh, give us a rating on iTunes if you are so inclined. And stay safe. Until next time, bye.